Hello and welcome to our special podcast for Consumer Week here at Unheard. I'm Charlie Pickles, I edit the Capitalism Strand at Unheard and I'm delighted to say that I am joined by a cast of experts for today's discussion on energy markets. I am joined by Henry Dezou, who is a former Conservative Special Advisor, um, but more importantly, now an entrepreneur and co-founded Look After My Bills. Henry, do you want to just very briefly tell us what that is? Yes, uh, Look After My Bills is a, is a new approach to energy switching and it's, a, it's an automatic energy switcher. So people don't have the time or energy to kind of shop around or spend hours on price comparison websites. So they, they hand it over to us. We do it for them. And then most importantly, uh, when they get a deal, uh, often a deal goes very bad after a year. And you have to remember to switch again, which is a complete nightmare, but we do it for you. So it's effectively handing over control to make sure you're never on a bad deal. Brilliant. And uh, switching and bad deals is obviously something we're going to talk about a bit more. I'm also joined by Scott Corf, uh, who is the chief economist at the London-based think tank, the Social Market Foundation, uh, whose, I mean, really bread and butter is how you make markets work better. Um, And also a fun fact, which I did notice, uh, Scott, in your bio on the think tank's website, is that you were voted one of the top three UK GDP forecasters. So we're going to be expecting a lot of accuracy uh, from you in today's discussion. No pressure. Uh, And I'm also joined, uh, delighted as always, by Peter Franklin, uh, our very own unheard, unpacked guru, who was also, uh, and perhaps more importantly for this discussion, um, a former advisor and speechwriter to Greg Clark, uh, who... uh, as most people I'm sure will know, is Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. So that is uh, the cast list for our discussion. Why are we talking about this? Well, we're doing Consumer Week here at Unheard because we believe that uh, when we look at markets today, we are seeing an awful lot of concentration. So we've seen the kind of creation of oligopolies, which means we have a few, a very small number of very big providers that dominate. And when you have that situation, you tend to find that it means that consumers get a bad deal because the producer has much more power. Um, So, you know, if we think about Adam Smith, the sort of uh, grandfather of modern uh, capitalism and his vision for free markets, I don't think he would really recognise the free market system that he envisaged in our consumer markets today. If we take the energy market, which is the sort of deep dive focus for us in this discussion, um, we have the big six, uh, which are six very large, um, very dominant providers. Um, We're going to get on to talking about uh, in a second how we've got to this situation. But just to give you a flavour of of why it's important to think about this in terms of energy uh, consumers, so the customers, um, the big six tend to have more expensive tariffs. So people who are with the big six tend to pay more more for their energy than if they were with a smaller provider um, and also tend to get a worse deal. So a recent survey by which the consumer group um, surveyed 31, well, the customers of 31 companies and uh, all of the big six were in the bottom third of ratings when it came to customer scores. So not only have we got higher prices, but we've also got, if we judge by consumers' own response, um, a a worse service from those uh, big providers. So to kick us off, Peter, we're in the situation we've got a big six, very dominant, take up, I think at the moment, still about 80% of uh, the, the retail consumers. Um, how have we got to this point? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Um, well, the 1920s, right, where there were hundreds of energy companies. Um, 
in the interwar period and the post-war period, those were sort of nationalised gradually, and 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 one big company created. Um, although gas was separate from electricity, um, sort of, um, and then privatization um, starting mid 80s uh, carrying through to, to the 90s created sort of about 14 companies and those were bought up by various other companies a lot of American energy companies came in um, a lot of that came to grief and gradually um, they were consolidated into six big companies, um, four of which um, are big European utilities. Um, there's a French nationalized company, um, EDF, there's a big Spanish one, and there's two Germans. The two Germans, they're not nationalized industries, but they're what are called national champions. So it's all quite corporatist. And that, that's, I mean, that's a really interesting point. So um, a recent populist poll found that um, almost 80%, so 70, 77% of people um, in this country, so in the UK, would support renationalizing the energy company. So, you know, I mean, I'm sure most of us around the table would not be pro-nationalizing uh, the energy company. So do, do I've got Henry sort of, you know, looking, bit, looking kind of maybe a bit. Um, but I mean, is there a case or is there an argument, Peter, for a sort of at least a kind of quasi uh, kind of nationalized energy model? So something akin to what you're describing in, in Germany? Well, you can say that it's already happened because it's, it's just that the companies involved are other countries' companies own our industry yeah, and yeah. run it as if it were corporatist or nationalised. So it's, uh, it's, it's a weird sort of deprivatisation, which we've outsourced to... Other nations. <laughs> yes, yeah, Spain, France okay. and Germany. That's the great irony of um, energy. How we've got to where and we are. at one point, they were even talking about um, selling um, Centrica, sort of British gas, to the Russians. <laughs> Um, okay, well, that that's, did, that's that what the whole other conversation happened. So. so this is there's a lot of ironies here. Okay, and Henry, I feel I should give you an opportunity to come back in there uh, on the nationalisation point. Well, I, th I think it's probably a bit too. F I mean, there is a great irony that we're, you know, that these these French uh, national companies are doing <laughs> doing all this stuff in other countries. But I, I think it's probably a bit too much for for for, for, uh, for nationalisation. But I tell you where I think in the energy industry, I'm not sure if we'll talk about this too much. But the grids, the national grids, and the local grids I think we have got real problems with uh, in the sense that they are there is zero competition with those guys and they are totally regulated but they are making billions in profits and when you look at their profit margins versus other grid companies in the rest of the world they're they're out of control mm -hmm. and I think there is a genuine arguments that these companies need to be uh, looked at very hard um, and there hasn't been enough scrutiny on them um, there has been a little bit recently with citizens advice we've done some research into into their into their uh, into their profit margins etc um, but that's where I think it would make most sense rather than in the kind of like actual uh, supply and so uh, Scott um I guess you know the reason we're concerned about this is because of the impact on consumers and the Social Market Foundation, the think tank um, that you're at, has done a lot of work on concentrated markets. So can you just give us a bit of an overview of why this is bad for the customers? Well, I think it has a, a huge range of impacts on the finances of UK households and also also the, the wider economy in the UK. So 
uh, the most direct impact of the fact that we've got such a concentrated energy market is that uh, consumers are not getting good value deals. Um, so uh, as you were saying, um, a lot of these big six energy tariffs are not not particularly good value for money, um, and that reflects the lack of competitive pressure to drive down prices. Um, our research also shows there's a link between how concentrated an industry is, how um, how much the industry is dominated by a small number of large companies, and levels of customer service. So where where industries have become more concentrated, you tend to see customer service diminishing. Um, because they don't um, need to. Because the pressure anything. is not there to provide quality customer service because these, these companies know that switching rates in the industry are quite low, they can provide terrible service and there's a large chunk of customers that still won't switch. Um, so they're, they're the most direct impacts. But then there are these wider economic impacts around uh, does the lack of competitive pressure in these markets actually reduce innovation? Does it reduce investment in the UK economy? Um, and could this be part of the UK's productivity problem? If the incentives for large companies to innovate are not there, um, that could be part of the, the UK's story of weak productivity growth. And that's quite an interesting point because um, I guess if you were standing uh, on the other side for a moment and you were part of a big six uh, energy supplier, you know, y y there are probably some arguments you can put forward to say, well, it's good to have big companies and, you know, being able to invest more, to do innovation, to do research and development might be one argument, um, and also economies of scale, uh, which allow you potentially to offer cheaper deals might also be another argument. And yet both of those things are entirely the opposite for our big six. Henry, I mean, y you know, you're running a company that is focused on, on you know, I, I'm not going to say taking business from the big six, but ultimately that probably is what it is. Um, you know, kind of what is the what's the real barrier to consumers being able to be engaged themselves? I think there's. I mean, it's, it's, it, we've had this funny discussion about energy switching uh, that's kind of had a had a very odd tone to it. Um, in fact, there's been, I mean, particularly when we saw the CMA report a couple of years ago. Competition and Markets Authority. Sorry, yes. Anyone who doesn't, doesn't know our lovely acronyms. <laughs> um, it was kind of like they were blaming consumers for not for not engaging. And, and I felt that was really quite wrong. And you can totally understand why some consumers don't want to engage. Um, uh, the, you know, first of all, like, it's deliberately made quite difficult by the by the energy companies to talk of kilowatt hours, you know, standing charges, unit rates, all of these things. Different regions of the country for different prices. You know, you could literally be, um, uh, you know, we did an analysis that looking at the postcode lottery and energy prices, where you could have a, a household on the same street using exactly the same amount of energy from the same energy company and on the same tariff, and it's a totally different price because of the way the whole the markets run. So the whole thing is, to be quite honest, very tricky. And we've had years, 15 years of people saying, you know, go on, you should go, go on price comparison websites, you should switch. They are confusing, they are time confusing, uh, time consuming. And, and also what happens as a general rule is, and, uh, and this is uh, uh, frankly extremely depressing, is that you get a good deal for a year, uh, even so let's say you do engage and you go and get a good deal, that lasts only for a year and then you get ripped, you get ripped off again and they put the prices up by another £300 and that happens across the board. And the truth of actually those cheap deals is that, I mean we call it the kind of Freddy Krueger uh, economy with this because the suppliers can only afford to do these cheap deals because they know that 60% will uh, not switch again after a year, 30% won't switch again after three years. Um, 
And so they therefore know they'll make their profits, they'll do a loss leader, and then they'll make their profits in years two and three. And it's kind of like this, it's, 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 it's very, uh, it's just wrong, really. And that's what we're trying to address to look after our bills. And we, we've had some extraordinary conversations with energy companies where they, where they were saying, uh, big six companies, where they were saying, well, uh, you know, we'd get someone a good deal, and when that deal comes to an end, we'd go back to them and say, hey, you know, your deal's come to an end, you need to get another deal. And energy companies would be saying, no, you can't, you can't do that. You know, that, that you, you know that's, we're going to put that in your contracts that you can't recontact these people. And we're like, well, no, that's not how it works. You know, Which is a very real example of producer interests being put before their consumers. Absolutely. Um, and, I, and it's a... Um, but unfortunately, that's kind of how the big six have worked for a long time now. And, you know, these are companies that have... They haven't fought to get their customers. They have literally inherited them mm. um, after privatization. And what they've done is that they've just done their best to get as much money out of those guys as possible for a certain period of time without kind of sending too many of them away. When they've engaged in the market, they've kind of mainly done it for kind of political reasons to kind of say, oh no, we have got a cheap deal out. They've had situations where they've had cheap deals out that their existing customers are not allowed to take absolutely disgraceful kind of kind of behavior and um, was cracked down on when it was kind of revealed they were they were doing that kind of thing but it's essentially it's the poorest and the older generation who are less engaged in the market not doing switching as much for the variety of reasons we talk, talked about before because it's you know it is it is kind of quite scary you know it's your gas electricity you do need that particularly when it's cold um, so it is kind of frightening but they are being taken advantage of and have done for a long time and so it's it's you know it's the very people who need the cheapest deals who are the least likely to get them um, so you know, we've got this very, very concentrated market that is not working for consumers. So the kind of no next obvious question is, well, we just need to increase competition then and that will solve all the problems. And we have seen an increase in competition over the last few years, particularly um, in the wake of that CMA report where, where kind of more action has been taken. So um, I think we have around 70 companies, is that right at the moment? Yeah. Um, who supply energy, whereas if we go back to sort of around 2006, uh, I think it was about 10 providers, or 2010 it was about 10 providers. So, you know, we have seen a quite significant increase. Are there still barriers in front of um, potential new entrants? So actually, in, in recent times, the barriers for entry for suppliers have, have really gone down. Uh, and there's been some companies that have made, um, have made it very easy for, it's actually it's a good example of innovation, where you can almost do a supplier in a box. Um, and you've had council setting up energy companies, you've had people white labeling and doing other energy companies. And, it's, and, it, and it has got a lot easier. That in itself has led to some worries because I think there are concerns over quality control. Some small, you know, uh, uh, Future Energy went bust this year. Uh, GB Energy went bust last year or two years ago. I mean, you know, GB Energy had a quarter of a million customers. Um, and I think there is some questions about actually the quality control of letting these, of, of these people, of, of who can set up these companies and the backing they have to be able to kind of survive. And Scott, I mean, that sounds like a job for the regulator. Um, what are Ofgem doing? I mean, are they are they doing good things to help consumers, or or are they slightly asleep at the wheel here? Well, I think Ofgem has done a, a range of good things, um, but I think the key issue with regulatory policy to date is the focus has been on encouraging consumers to switch, uh, increasing the amount of information available around. Uh, how easy it is to switch and the benefits of doing so and how how, how to go about the process. Um, regulators really need to get m more real with the fact that there are 
a huge pool of customers that will not switch no matter how much information you throw at them, no matter how easy you make the process of switching. Um, so what I'd really like to see is much more innovative um, measures in this space. So things such as automatically switching the most the most vulnerable consumers onto better deals. Um, um, measures that where um, people other than the consumers themselves are making the decisions around um, getting getting onto be- onto better energy deals because we cannot rely on some consumers making those choices um, because they are vulnerable. Um, there's a lot of evidence available showing that being in poverty constrains your decision making, um, and also if you're in poverty, you're more, much more risk averse. You you are concerned that if if you switch and you you could end up paying higher prices for your energy bill. You're worried that um, the billing process could go wrong, um, the company could go bust, and this could leave you without energy. Although, although it's not 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 really the case, so lots of people are concerned about that. Um, so, given this level of risk aversion, and given the fact that poverty does constrain decision making, if you really want to help vulnerable consumers, um, remove, I would say I would I would say that you need to do the decision making for them. And, and I mean, that, that is a really good point. And um, I think the, the average uh, poverty premium, um, as uh, the kind of jargon goes, um, was about £500 uh, in 2016. So that's, that's the additional amount of money that um, poor households end up paying. Uh, this is not just the energy market, though the energy market makes up a very large chunk of that poverty premium, just simply because they're low income and aren't able to get the best deals across consumer markets. So you know, off the back of that, that that kind of implies then that the government's intention to introduce a price cap may well be quite a good idea because um, you're you know you're forcing pro- pro- providers, the suppliers, um, to keep their costs lower. Um, but it is quite a controversial idea, and you know there are people who are very much for it, but also people who are worried about things like the impact on competition, new entrants, the impact on uh, the availability of investment, uh, and therefore the innovation, um, and also generally the the kind of, you know, the sort of interference in in kind of market economics, Um, although I think we, given our discussion, might accept that the market economics aren't working very well here. Um, If I could maybe start off with Henry, I mean, what's your view of the price caps? So, I mean, we... You know, so we're a, a, a switching organisation, and I, I think we're the only switching organisation that is pro the price cap. Um, I mean, a lot of these, I think a lot of uh, price comparison websites stuff are being uh, kind of blatantly self-interested because they they worry that a, a cap will lead to less switching because it will be the, the bigger saving for people will, will, uh, will not um, be there. It will be a little bit lower. So instead of like normally being able to save 300 quid, you can save 200 quid. So they're worried that that's going to hit their, their bottom line. They, I, I don't think there's that huge amount of evidence that a cap will lead to small amount, lower levels of switching. In fact, in Northern Ireland, uh, where they effectively have a have a cap with the same switching levels as we do have now, um, and I think fundamentally the reason we are pro a cap is that we've had 20 years of people saying switch, 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 and just like Scott said, you know people haven't haven't done it, and like you know there's only so many times you can you can carry on doing that, um, and actually we do need to protect. 
um, and get a, a price cut for people who haven't had one and have been paying for paying three hundred pounds too much every year for ten years now. Um, and I think therefore it's the right thing to do. I do think it has to be temporary um, because I think it's important to try and get ourselves into a place where we don't need that and hopefully innovations like look after my bills and getting people to kind of engage in different ways which I think will happen will mean we won't necessarily need a price cap in the future but it, it just isn't working now and the evidence of long long time is that it hasn't worked and it is the poorest who are being most off so we are I you know I'm very pro. And Scott? Well I'm an economist and economists for the most part don't like um, sort of price caps or they, they, these kind of these kind of interventions in the marketplace. Um, so uh, I can I can see the case for a price cap to protect protect vulnerable consumers for now. But I agree that this should be a temporary measure. Um, so whilst the price cap's in place, we should be looking at what measures we can introduce to have real competition in the market and to to have um, good outcomes for vulnerable consumers without the need for a price cap. Um, my real concern around price cap is the potential pol- politicisation of that price cap. Um, over the long term, and you could e- you could easily imagine a situation where politicians start wading into um, the debate around what the price cap should be around the time of general elections. Um, there could be lots of political pressure to keep the price cap low um, if an election is approaching. Um, so this could really distort the market, I think. Um, and there is also a real risk of, uh, even though the the intention is probably for this to be a temporary measure is it can become very entrenched. When Much you, like taxes, when you, know, you, you introduce inter- a temporary when, tax when, and all of a sudden it's permanent. Exactly, so I think when, it's going to be very hard to get rid of this price cap once we have it. And Peter, I mean, kind of looking internationally, are there any examples of places that have had something similar to this and, and the impact that that's had? I think Spain's a good example where they basically fix the price and yes, it got politicised and yes, the um, uh, the Spanish energy system isn't getting the um, the investments it needs, and we only have to look at the UK's history in other um, areas, like um, say the trains, um, where you had decades under British Rail, and you know anyone who can remember how the trains were, you know, at time of privatisation, they were dreadful. They were absolutely awful, and that was the res- that was the effect of decades of underinvestments. Um, water industry, uh, uh, another example. So, you know, a price cap is is may may be necessary temporarily, but it's a big danger if it becomes permanent. But we may not be able to avoid it becoming permanent if politicians are in the driving seat. Um, Peter, I guess as a, a final point, given you kicked us off with a bit of history of how we've got here. Um, what do you think we should be thinking about if we're going to be con- protecting consumers, you know, ensuring consumers get the best deals in the future? Well, new technology is vastly complicating um, and expanding the possibilities for the future. Um, think about electric cars. Once those become um, uh, the standard, that will mean there's vast battery capacity across the country, right? Um, and then the ability to store and trade electricity in vast quantities in ways that are profoundly decentralized and out of the direct control of the big six energy companies. Then you've got smart meters, which um, in theory should allow you to buy electricity when it's cheapest. So um, consumers being able to participate in the wholesale markets. 
And then you've got um, artificial intelligence that could do things like um, Henry's, what Henry's uh, service is offering and could be sitting there on your home computer, your sort of whatever Alexa is like in, in, in 10 years, <laughs> 20 years time, managing your household energy use. So, you know, we don't know where all of this is gonna land, but, and it will all require new forms of regulation, but we must absolutely make sure that regulation works in the interests primarily of consumers and isn't gamed by the big established players and their very um, sort of formidable lobbying operations. So there's a real fight, a political fight, with a huge amount of detail um, and complexity to work out there. But um, it could eventually provide a solution that we can't quite get to at the moment. But one that regulators need to be uh, looking ahead at rather than being the people who have to sort of run to try and catch up when changes have already happened. Absolutely, but the worlds will change profoundly. Well, there we go. Thank you so much to my guests, to Henry and Scott and Peter. Thank you very much also to James Coney, who is producing uh, this podcast. Um, and obviously, thank you so much to you for listening today. Um, please do subscribe to the Unheard podcasts. Um, we have a whole array of different types from the audio documentaries, the weeklies and the shorts. Um, and also, please do check out the other products, the articles and podcasts um, that are part of Consumer Week at Unheard.